You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's July 30th, 1802. The echo of two shots crack off the banks of Weehawken, New Jersey. Two men stand 10 paces apart. Newly elected New York Senator DeWitt Clinton, nephew of former New York Governor George Clinton, and John Swartout, a longtime political ally of Senator Aaron Burr. Each man holds a smoking pistol in their hands, but neither are wounded. Clinton and Swartout have exchanged three rounds of fire, and so far, no one's been hit. Swartout's second looks concerned. Mr. Swartout, are you satisfied, sir? I am not. Neither shall I be until that apology is made which I demanded. Take this. Until then, we must proceed. Swartout's second takes the piece of paper in his hands and makes his way over to Mr. Clinton. A statement of apology, Mr. Clinton. Will you sign? What exactly am I apologizing for? Please, do tell. We cannot spend our time in conversation. This paper must be signed to bring about an end to this. I will not sign any paper on the subject. I have no animosity against Mr. Swartout. I will willingly shake hands and agree to meet on the score of former friendship, but I will never sign this document. And we must proceed. For the fourth time, Clinton and Swartout stand back to back, walk their paces, and turn. Fire! This time, though, Clinton hits his mark. Swartout falls to the ground, writhing in pain, shot just below his left knee. Swartout's second runs to his side. Are you satisfied now, sir? It's useless to repeat the question. My determination is fixed. Be reasonable. I will never yield. I beg we proceed. Doctor! The doctor runs to Swartout's side. As he removes the ball from his knee, Swartout moans in agony. Clinton steps forward. Sir, I hold no animosity towards you. I am sorry for what has passed here today between us. I am willing to shake hands and bury the circumstance where it belongs in oblivion. Swartout climbs to his feet, seething in agony. Sign the paper, Mr. Clinton, or take your position. For the fifth time, they tow their marks, walk their paces, and take aim. Clinton's shot hits Swartout again this time just above the left ankle. As Swartout falls to the ground, Clinton steps forward and calls out, Are you satisfied, Mr. Swartout? I'm not, Mr. Clinton. Sign the apology or proceed. Clinton shakes his head in disbelief. You may proceed, sir, but you will do so alone. Clinton throws his pistol to the ground and walks away from the dueling grounds. Befuddled, Swartout turns to a second and asks, What do I do now? There's nothing left for you to do, though I might suggest we get you to a hospital, lest you lose your leg. As Swartout writhes in pain, DeWitt Clinton climbs in his boat and pushes out for Manhattan. He's lucky to be alive and grateful his honor and reputation remain intact. DeWitt Clinton, the recently elected senator from New York, has his sights set on higher office. To achieve his goal, he will need his honor, his reputation, and a little luck, too.
Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. DeWitt Clinton, like his uncle George Clinton, was a prominent Democratic-Republican politician in New York. In 1802, DeWitt was elected to the United States Senate. He went on to serve as the mayor of New York City and governor of New York State. Also like his uncle, DeWitt Clinton wanted to be president. In the upcoming election of 1812, Clinton would break away from his party, the Democratic-Republicans, and make a run for the White House he would forge an alliance between disaffected Republicans and their traditional nemesis, the Federalists. Clinton supporters from the two warring political factions agreed on few issues, but they united around one common cause, their distaste for President James Madison, especially Madison's posture towards Great Britain. In the decades-long conflict between France and Great Britain, the U.S. managed to remain neutral. During Madison's first term, that neutrality was put to the test. Madison had no choice but to defend his country against British oppression and to defend his presidency against a threat from within the ranks of his own party. This is Episode 7, 
1812, the wartime election. It's May 17, 1811, at dawn. Two warships, the USS President and the HMS Little Belt, are anchored in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of North Carolina. After a lengthy nighttime battle, the Americans and the British meet for parley on the racked deck of the Little Belt. The British sailors are beaten, bruised, and defeated. American Lieutenant J. Ord Creighton steps forward and addresses the British commander. My name is Lieutenant Creighton. Commodore Rogers of the USS President wishes to know your name and rank, as well as the name of this ship. The dejected British captain musters a reply. I'm Commander Arthur Bingham of the HMS Little Belt. Commander Bingham, Commodore Rogers sends his regards. He wishes you to know how much he regrets the unfortunate events of last night. <laughs> unfortunate? The Little Belt is shot to pieces. The upper works are completely destroyed and the starboard pump is shattered. As I said, Commodore Rogers sends his apologies. My masts, sails, and rigging are beyond repair, sir, not to mention upwards of 30 of my men are wounded or dead. This apology means nothing. It was an unfortunate and tragic misunderstanding, sir. But rest assured, France is your enemy. America is not. Then why are there so many holes in my ship, Lieutenant? The Commodore wishes to offer his assistance to you and your crew. How very generous. The Commodore also wishes to escort you to the nearest American port. There, he will see your ship repaired. We sail for Halifax, sir, not American soil. Sensing Bingham's frustration, Creighton tries to ease the tension. Commander, had Commodore Rogers realized the Little Belt was merely a sloop and not a ship of the line, he would have responded differently, I assure you. As you know, it was the darkest of nights. We were only trying to identify your vessel. You were chasing us, sir, and you were fleeing. You approached the President and then changed course. As you must know, our orders are to protect the American coast. The Commodore had an obligation to investigate. Did he have an obligation to fire on us? The first shot was yours, sir. It most certainly was not. The Little Belt fired first. Commodore Rogers answered in kind. Bingham grits his teeth, forces down his anger, and maintains his composure. Give Commodore Rogers my thanks, though I must politely decline his offer. We have all the supplies we need to make repairs at sea on the journey to Halifax. Please, Commander, you are likely to sink in your current condition. We will take our chances, as you wish. But with your permission, we have orders to inspect the little belt before we disembark. By all means. Bingham watches silently as Creighton and the Americans set about their work. The little belt is a small sloop of war, only 20 guns. The USS President is a massive fourth-rate frigate, or ship of the line, with 54 guns and 1,500 tons of displacement. Bingham knows that he and what remains of his crew are lucky to have survived the attack. He also knows he's not out of danger yet. The Little Belt's wounds are nearly fatal. With a long sea voyage ahead, Bingham knows that if French warships don't overtake him, the treacherous waters of the Atlantic most certainly will. And now he has another enemy to worry about, the Americans. For many Americans, the Little Belt affair, as it would come to be known, was payback for an atrocity that had occurred four years prior, the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. On June 22, 1807, a British ship, the Leopard, had stopped an American ship, the USS Chesapeake. When the American captain had refused to let the British commander search his ship for deserters, the British had opened fire, forcibly boarded the Chesapeake, seized American sailors, 
and impress them into service. When Commodore Rogers returned to the port of New York after nearly annihilating the HMS Little Belt, he received a hero's welcome. In the minds of many Americans, the British were finally getting a taste of their own medicine. These naval skirmishes were part of an ongoing conflict between the British and the French. In 1806, France had issued the Berlin Decree, which banned all trade with neutral parties like the U.S., as well as with their primary enemy, Great Britain. Soon, French ships had begun seizing American merchant vessels. The next year, Britain had responded by doing the same. When the British needed more sailors to fight the French, the Royal Navy had resorted to impressing American sailors into British service. With the support of his Secretary of State James Madison, President Jefferson had responded by signing into law the Embargo Act of 1807, a law banning American ships from trading in all foreign ports. Jefferson and Madison had hoped the embargo would hit the French and British where it hurt the most, their treasuries, but the embargo had failed to bring France and Britain to the negotiating table and instead sent the U.S. economy into a tailspin. The embargo had been so unpopular and ineffective that it had been revoked in the final days of Jefferson's presidency. But in its absence, a trade war still raged on, and so did the impressment of American sailors on the high seas. The Little Belt Affair showed the simmering conflict between the U.S. and Great Britain was far from over. After Jefferson refused a third term, the task of dealing with Great Britain would fall to President James Madison, and his response would define the election of 1812. After winning the 1808 contest, Madison had inherited a divided country and a fractured Republican Party. Madison maintained strong support among a faction of moderates in his party, a group comprised of a growing class of business professionals, estate owners, and tenant farmers. The Tertium Quids, led by John Randolph of Roanoke, Virginia, were a group of extreme constitutional purists in the Republican Party. The Quids vehemently opposed standing armies and the accumulation of debt and most vociferously, war. And so, Randolph was deeply worried about another growing faction in the Republican Party, the so-called War Hawks, a group of younger politicians, largely from the South and West, led by Henry Clay of Kentucky. Clay had risen to prominence in the wake of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair by taking a vocal anti-British position. Clay had called Great Britain's actions against the U.S. atrocious, proclaiming, I am for resistance by the sword. Clay and the Warhawks had won many seats in Congress in the midterm election of 1810. And in March of 1811, Clay had been elected Speaker of the House on his first day as congressman. In response, John Randolph had remarked, Mark my words, we shall have war before the end of the session. To Clay and the rest of the Warhawks, Madison had been a weak president who had taken a weak posture towards the British. Madison, like Jefferson before him, had advocated for neutrality in the ongoing conflict between Great Britain and France. On the subject of war, Madison had once written, Of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debt and taxes, the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In his inaugural speech, Madison had declared that the U.S. must maintain sincere neutrality towards belligerent nations. But by the time of the Little Belt Affair, Madison was beginning to reconsider. That's in large part because Madison's diplomatic and economic policies had failed. The Embargo Act of 1807, which banned all foreign trade, had been such an economic disaster that the act had been repealed days before Madison took the White House. 
Congress then replaced the Embargo Act with the Non-Intercourse Act, which limited the trade ban only to British and French ports. But like the Embargo Act before it, the Non-Importation Act had further damaged the U.S. economy and only served to increase tensions with Great Britain and France. Not long after the Little Belt Affair, Secretary of State James Monroe tried to convince Madison to take a stand. We have been so long dealing in small ways of embargoes, non-intercourse, and non-importation with menaces of war. The British government has not believed us. We must actually get to war before the intention to make it will be credited either here or abroad. In early November 1811, Madison addressed Congress on the subject of Great Britain. With this evidence of hostile inflexibility and trampling on rights which no independent nation can relinquish, Congress will feel the duty of putting the United States into an armor and an attitude demanded by the crisis and corresponding with the national spirit and expectations. Madison asked Congress for 10,000 additional troops for the regular army. In his address to Congress, Madison also suggested that a conflict with Great Britain would require the U.S. to move against Britain's Native American allies. Madison stated that he intended to confront the Wabash Indians. According to Madison, the Wabash had fallen under the influence and direction of a fanatic of the Shawnese tribe. Madison was referring to the Shawnee leader Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa, known as the Prophet. Since as far back as 1805, Tecumseh had called on Native Americans to reject the European way of life. Tecumseh and his brother rose to power and prominence by advocating for nativist practices and amassing a confederation of like-minded Native Americans. Suspecting the U.S. would never stop its expansion, Tecumseh sought an alliance with Great Britain. As Madison delivered his message to Congress, American military forces, led by future President William Henry Harrison, were marching on Prophetstown, the Indian capital on the Tippecanoe River, near what is today Lafayette, Indiana. The ensuing bloody conflict would push the U.S. closer to war with Britain, further estrange Madison from his own party, and leave open the door for disenfranchised Republicans to cut ties and look for an alternate candidate in the election of 1812. If you are a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. 
It's November 7th, 1811, before dawn, just outside of Prophetstown in the Indiana Territory. Private William Brigham stands at his post on the northwest perimeter of the American encampment. Brigham's been on watch since three in the morning. It's been a quiet night so far, but tensions are high. Under orders from General William Henry Harrison, Brigham and the rest of the American soldiers made camp just outside the stronghold of the Wabash Indians. Brigham stares out into the cold, dark night. He listens to the sound of the rain falling. From the darkness, he hears something else, too. Who goes there? Brigham clutches his rifle tight and peers into the night. He can hardly see three feet in front of his face. Damn your whistling! Show yourself! From the darkness, another sentinel appears. Private Brown, Hawkins Company. Get back to your post, Private. What's your name, soldier? William Brigham. Look sharp, William. We're not alone tonight. The general is meeting the Indians at first light. We have nothing to fear. They said they wanted to make peace. Or they wanted to buy time to launch an attack. They wouldn't stand a chance against us. The Redcoats have been training them in the capital, teaching them how to fight. You really trust savages to keep their word with a Brit standing right behind them? We have our orders to guard the perimeter. Get back to your post, now. Wait, did you hear that? Of course I did. They're out there, I know it. Brown pulls back his hammer and points his gun high in the air. Brigham stops him short. What do you think you're doing? We should fire our weapons in the air and fall back to camp before it's too late. (laughs) What we should do is follow orders. There are Indians in the bushes. I can hear them out there. For all you know, it's a deer. Shh, shh. Did you hear that? Brigham looks down to find a fresh arrow sticking out of the ground. Brown's eyes swell with fear. Without a word, he and Brigham turn and make for camp. As they run in terror, they hear a single shot in the distance. Then the war cries of the Wabash Indians echoing from all sides. If the Little Belt Affair had stoked the flames of war, the Battle of Tippecanoe, as it would come to be called, poured on more pitch. In the minds of the Warhawks in Congress, the Battle of Tippecanoe was an act of aggression, not only by the Indians, but by Great Britain. Felix Gundy, a Warhawk from Tennessee, roared on the floor of the House, War is not to commence by sea or land, it has already begun, and some of the richest blood of our country has already been shed. Grundy demanded that Madison drive the British from our continent to prevent them from training the ruthless savage to tomahawk our women and children. For Grundy and the Warhawks, the best way to retaliate against the British was to sack Canada and bring the territory into the United States. Unlike the Warhawks, the Tertium Quids were deeply skeptical of British involvement. The Quids leader, John Randolph of Roanoke, demanded proof that the British incited the attack. Randolph accused Henry Clay and the Warhawks of ginning up a crisis to justify war. But in the end, the Warhawks would win the argument. A few days before the Battle of Tippecanoe, President Madison had asked Congress to shore up American defenses. On January 11, 1812, just two months after the attack, Congress responded by increasing enlistment pay, raising wages, and offering land to soldiers. Madison had asked for an increase of 10,000 troops. Congress led by warhawks like Henry Clay, gave him 25,000. But increasing the size of the military was one thing. Committing to war was another. John Randolph declared that a war of conquest to acquire new territories and subjects was anti-American. He chided his fellow party members, saying they could call themselves Republicans and they could support a war, but that they could not do both. 
Randolph also challenged his fellow Republicans to repeal the Non-Importation Act. On the floor of the House, Randolph asked, Will you plunge yourselves in war because you have passed a foolish and ruinous law and are ashamed to repeal it? Randolph reminded the Republicans in the House that the Tertium Quids had remained consistent in their views from the beginning. They had opposed a standing army under Washington. They had always supported neutrality in the ongoing British-French conflict. They had opposed Adams' quasi-war with France, and now they would oppose war with Great Britain. Randolph proudly called the Quids those firm and undeviating Republicans who then dared, and now dare, to cling to the Ark of the Constitution, to defend it even at the expense of their fame, rather than surrender themselves to the wild projects of mad ambition. But Madison doubled down. On April 1, 1812, Madison wrote Congress asking for another embargo on all vessels now in port or hereafter arriving. Congress responded by approving Madison's embargo for a period of 90 days. Madison publicly denied that the embargo was a war measure, but privately, Madison's thinking was in line with Clay and the Warhawks. Madison wrote that the British prefer war with us. We have nothing left, therefore, but to make ready for it. War, though, was not the only issue Madison was facing in the spring of 1812. In late April, just a few weeks after Madison asked for the embargo, tragedy would strike his administration. On April 20th, Madison's vice president, George Clinton of New York, passed away. His death left Madison without a vice president and the New York Republicans without a political leader. On May 18, 1812, the Republican caucus met and nominated Madison for a second term. John Langdon, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, was nominated for vice president. But when Langdon refused to serve, Madison was left with a difficult decision about who his replacement would be. When the caucus voted, Langdon received 64 votes. The man receiving the second highest number of votes was Elbridge Gerry, the former governor of Massachusetts. In the 1810 midterm election, Massachusetts had been taken back by the Federalists, and Gary had been voted out, in large part because of his support for Madison's pro-war posture. But despite Gary's support, Madison was reluctant to bring Gary into the fold. Gary had been a thorn in Madison's side in the past, especially at the Philadelphia Convention, where Gary had refused to support Madison's draft of the Constitution. Gary was controversial for another reason. In September of 1787, not only did he not support Madison's draft, he had rebuked the entire Constitutional Convention and became one of only three men present who refused to sign the Constitution. But Madison received a word of warning from former President John Adams. Adams cautioned Madison that he must do right by Gary, who had suffered as a result of his support for Madison. Adams warned, if he is not in some way or other supported, but suffered to sink, his principles and measures will be the dangerous, if not fatal, discouragement in all this section of the Union. John Adams was warning that if Gary's support for the war ended his career, it might discourage others in Congress from backing Madison. Madison heeded Adams' advice. Gary was selected as his vice presidential running mate. By the summer of 1812, Madison was convinced that war was the only alternative. But to rally his party and Congress behind him, he would have to win over the Tertium Quids and the Federalists, too. The Quids opposed the war on constitutional grounds, the Federalists largely for economic reasons. Great Britain was New England's number one trading partner. Madison had been a fierce advocate of economic sanctions against Great Britain, 
and so was concerned he would be seen to favor war only because the economic sanctions he supported had been disastrous. Madison was also aware that if his efforts to rally the country behind war failed, it might cost him the election. So on June 1st, 1812, Madison went before Congress to make his case. He began by leaning into a hot topic, the impressment of Americans into the Royal Navy. Madison explained how countless American citizens have been torn from their country and forced to risk their lives in the battles of their oppressors and to be the melancholy instruments of taking away those of their own brethren. In reference to the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, Madison reminded Congress that Great Britain had wantonly spilled American blood within the sanctuary of our territorial jurisdiction. Madison also drilled down on the economic stakes at hand. The great staples of our country have been cut off from their legitimate markets. In his closing remarks, he summed up his point of view by stating, On the side of Great Britain, a state of war against the United States, and on the side of the United States, a state of peace towards Great Britain. In Madison's mind, the question was simple. Would the U.S. continue to take a passive stance in the face of progressive usurpations and accumulating wrongs, or would America stand force to force in her defense of her national rights? For four days, the House debated the issue. Randolph and the Tertium Quids, along with the Federalists, remained in staunch opposition. The North was largely against the war, the South and West largely for it. On June 4th, the House voted 79 to 49 in favor of war. Randolph and the Quids abstained. The Senate passed the war resolution on June 17, 1812. Madison signed it the next day. As Secretary of State and through the majority of his first term as president, Madison had tried his best to avoid war with Great Britain through diplomatic and economic means. But now he was prepared to stake his presidency and potentially the outcome of the election of 1812 on a war with Great Britain. Madison's decision to embrace war would leave the door open for another Republican politician, DeWitt Clinton. Clinton would rise to prominence by defining himself in part as the anti-war candidate. By building a coalition of Republicans and Federalists, Clinton would give Madison a run for his money and make the election of 1812 the closest popular vote yet in American history. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. 
And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. After the death of George Clinton in April of 1812, Republicans in New York and New England had switched their allegiance to his nephew, DeWitt Clinton, a rising star in New York politics. Initially, Clinton seemed like an unlikely candidate. For one thing, he had no military experience, aside from serving as a militia officer in the 1790s. His service in government was largely local and regional. He had served for a short time in the U.S. Senate, and at the time of his uncle's death, he had been serving as both mayor of New York City and lieutenant governor of New York State. He had little foreign policy experience. And as to the question of Great Britain, he had taken both sides, standing for and against the embargo of 1807. To his detractors, it seemed his main accomplishment was having a famous uncle. But Clinton was a savvy politician, a coalition builder, and a real threat to Madison's re-election prospects. When the Republican caucus met in the summer of 1812 to nominate Madison for a second term, the New York Republicans had refused to attend and had nominated Clinton instead. Madison was not naive to the threat DeWitt posed to his re-election chances, and neither was his wife Dolly. She wrote to her niece that DeWitt and the New York Republicans intended to break us down. In public, Madison kept his cool. In keeping with precedent, he did not campaign publicly, choosing instead to focus his efforts on winning the war. But this proved to be a nearly fatal mistake for Madison's re-election prospects. The key to a Clinton victory was winning Federalist support. For Clinton, it would be a Herculean task. He had been a staunch critic of Federalists in past elections. And being the nephew of George Clinton, one of the most staunch anti-Federalists in the country, did not help his cause either. In spite of all of this, Clinton was able to pull off an extraordinary political feat that would make the election of 1812 a very narrow contest. It's August 5th, 1812, just after 5 p.m. in a fancy parlor in the South Bronx. On one side of the room, former New York Senator Rufus King and a handful of Federalist politicians sip cocktails and smoke cigars. On the other side of the room sits presidential hopeful, the Republican mayor of New York City, DeWitt Clinton. The Federalists watch as Clinton thumbs through a list of policy positions put forward by the Federalists. After a moment, Clinton sets the stack of documents on a small table in front of him. Senator King walks forward to meet him. What do you say, Mr. Clinton? I suppose my own opinions do not differ from those put forward in these resolutions. Then do we understand each other? We have an agreement? It is not my own opinions that give me pause, but rather the opinions of my fellow Republicans in the state of New York and across the country. The members of my faction, sir, are split on the question of war with Great Britain. The war must be opposed, Mr. Clinton. Your solution, Mr. King, is a citywide peace meeting to be held in a few days' time to garner public support, yes. Have you considered the peace meeting might have the opposite effect? No, sir. We stand against the war with Great Britain. We must rally like-minded New Yorkers to our cause. Who are these like-minded New Yorkers, Mr. King? New Yorkers of the Republican ilk are not wealthy merchants or powerful politicians like yourself. The British have insulted the people of this country with impressment. If I were to cozy up to the wealthy merchants of New York, that could be rather insulting as well. 
insulting enough to drive them further into the hands of President Madison. Well, what do you suggest? Time. Anti-war sentiment is growing by the day. Let us wait on the peace meeting. In a few weeks' time, the anti-war sentiments will reach its peak, and we will be able to win the support of Federalists and Republicans. In the meantime, I will confer with my party and bring them together in common cause. But suppose the Republicans cannot be won to the side of opposing the war. The Republicans of New York will unite on one subject, Mr. King, their distaste for the policies of Mr. Madison. I will make my true views known publicly in due time, but in the meantime, I ask for your discretion. You shall have it. As the two men shake hands, an unprecedented political alliance is born. The Federalist Party will not put forth their own presidential candidate. Instead, they will throw their support behind a Republican, DeWitt Clinton. Rufus King and the leaders of the Federalist Party didn't have many options. They understood that with Clinton on the ballot, no Federalist could win New York. And without New York, the Federalists didn't stand a chance of winning back the White House. So for the first and only time in American history, a large contingent of the opposition party put their support behind a protest candidate from the incumbent president's own party. But pro-Clinton Federalists had to be restrained. A full-throated endorsement of Clinton would damage Clinton's standing with the Republicans. So publicly, Federalists did not push Clinton. Privately, though, they urged Federalists to vote for electors who would hand the election to DeWitt Clinton. To beat Madison, Clinton needed Federalist support in New England, but he also needed Republican support in the South. Clinton's strategy for winning over the Northeast and the South was simple. Play both sides. The New York Columbian, a pro-Clinton newspaper, called Clinton an enlightened politician who was committed to no particular system, either in diplomacy or administration. This would be the central theme of Clinton's campaign. He would try to be everything to everyone. He would change his views depending on his audience. In the North, he spoke out against the war. In the South, he spoke in favor of it. His plan almost worked. The election of 1812 lasted from October until early December. 18 states cast ballots. Madison won with a total of 128 electoral votes, taking all of the South, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. Clinton received 89 electoral votes and won nearly all of New England, including his home state of New York. But if Clinton had been able to win Pennsylvania, Madison would have lost. The electoral vote was that close, but the popular vote was even closer. Madison won by less than three percentage points, receiving 50.4% of the vote to Clinton's 47.6. Madison, the wartime candidate, won the election of 1812, but his showing was far less impressive than it had been in 1808. The Republicans maintained control of Congress, but they too lost ground, and the Federalists gained seats in both houses. The outcome of the election clearly showed that the country was not united around the war. Madison had staked his presidency and his legacy on war with Great Britain. In the end, America would rise to the challenge, though the results would be mixed. In the war's aftermath, an economic boom would once again rally the country behind the Republicans. But at the end of his second term, in keeping with precedent established by Washington and carried forward by Jefferson, Madison would step aside. He had tried to keep America out of the fight using diplomacy, and only when it became unavoidable did he embrace the path of war. But it was Madison's conduct in the War of 1812 that would solidify not only his presidential legacy, but the future political dominance of the Republican Party. But with Madison retiring and out of the picture, the stage was set 
Finally, for another founding father from Virginia, James Monroe. This is Episode 7 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1812, The Wartime Candidate. On the next episode, the election of 1816, in the wake of the War of 1812, Secretary of State James Monroe takes his place at the head of the Republican Party and cements his legacy as the last founding father to serve as President of the United States. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West, from famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.